0: This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. I'm here to welcome you on behalf of the Comparative Media Studies Program, the program in Media Arts and Sciences, uh, which Gloriana Davenport has helped collaborate with us uh, to make this part of their schedule and the, the LSC lecture series, uh, which has also contributed and helped to make this a, pos- a possibility. I'm really excited to be able to, sh- to introduce you to Scott McCloud today. Uh, I was lucky enough to stumble in the Understanding Comics pretty early in its print run and we've had Scott back through MIT a number of times. He's been a great ally and friend of MIT. We most recently have he was back heading for a week to do a workshop with students about some of the ideas that took shape into making comics and so he's pleased to see from some familiar ideas and concepts uh, in the new book. Understanding comics has I think transformed the way many of us think about comics as a medium. Uh, It gave us a new language, a new set of critical frameworks, it's a work I use to introduce grad students to media theory because it's so richly grounded in a whole bunch of theoretical debates and is so interesting in the ways in which it uses media to talk about media. I think it's an exemplar of what the best media theory could be. Uh, you know, His reinventing comics posed some really interesting perspectives on digital change, and making comics, which I just got through reading yesterday, does a very, is a very useful resource for teaching both would-be artists and would-be viewers of artists to think about this medium in new ways. So he's someone who's always pushing the boundaries, always moving forward in a rapid you know, pushing in some interesting directions. So I'm just, no, no further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to Scott. The way the program will work, Scott's gonna to talk to us. Uh, his daughter Sky is gonna share some of her impressions. And we're gonna hear from three of grad students, one from Media Arts and Sciences, two from CMS. We're gonna share some work that's going on here at MIT that's connected to the issues that Scott's raising. And then we're gonna open up to you guys for discussion. I should note, this is the first of a number of events we're gonna have through the CMS program this term. Next week, two really exciting communication forums that some of you in this room will be interested in. On Tuesday, in this room from five to seven, will be a program of Dan Gilmore, the the author of an important book about blogging and citizen journalism, uh, and Alan Hume from PBS. And on Thursday, I'm going to be, in the same time and slot, I will be in a conversation with Yochi Binkler, author of The Wealth of Networks, and we'll be talking about his new book, Wealth of Networks, my new book, Convergence Culture, Where Old and New Media Collide, and it'll be an interesting exchange about the future of participatory culture and as that impacts the whole space of civic journalism. So next week's going to be a really great week. I encourage you to check out the schedule on the CMS website. These events are all going to be podcast as well, and anyone who wants to follow that, should check out my new blog, uh, HenryJenkins.org, uh, where where you can see uh, you can find the latest news about the stuff, the programming we're doing, and the activities and research that's going on. So that said, let me turn it over to Scott, and uh, we'll let him take it away.
1: Thank you. All right, let's see if I have yes, I have voice. Okay. Uh, I just want to add to that, uh, uh, last time I was here, I've been to, uh, up to MIT a few times. I was here in the Media Lab, I think in this very room, Lenny informed me, um, in March of 2005. So it's been a really long time. That, but I've been up to MIT since, and as Henry says, the last time was to give this five-day seminar. And I just want to add that Henry took that class, and, uh, which I think is a very brave thing to do, to go in alongside your students. And, uh, and have to you know, draw your whole life in 16 panels, and do all these crazy exercises, uh, speed exercise and whatnot. Did a terrific job. Do you mean 95? Because you said 2005. Yes. That's last year. Yes, that's right. A long time ago. <laughs> long ago in 2005. Thank you. Yes, I did mean 95. It's been 11 and a half years. Thank you, Ivy. <laughs> Okay, let's give this a try. I'm going to go pretty fast. I have several hundred slides, but they go by at a reasonable clip. As as the sky slides go by, pretty fast One thirty nine for her, and something like three hundred eighty for me. Is like 10th of the size. Yes, mine is tenth of this. Oh, ten times the size. Yeah, yeah. Yours is yeah. You'll, you'll see what she has in store. I'm going to talk about ideas in the book, and actually, all sort of all three books and general ideas about comics, and then Sky will be telling you all about the tour that we're on with the whole family. So let's get started. Uh, When I got started uh, making comics, uh, I was brought up on things like how to draw comics the Marvel way. Recently, I had to um, sort of revisit my ideas about making comics because I was given the chance to teach a seminar, the the, the aforementioned seminar, which we began at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design back in 2002. and uh, when, I, as I said, when I was coming up in the sort of that how to draw comics the Marvel way era, uh, we were taught that you had to get all the right tools and make your pages look dynamic. Um, <laughs> and so, but uh, uh, comics have been going through a lot of mutations uh, lately. Um, the uh, <laughs> we have the traditional comics strips and comic books have uh, been joined by a literate graphic novel movement and comics coming in from Europe and uh, an influx of uh, Japanese comics, manga, and then this explosion of web comics. And in teaching how to make comics in 2006, you have to uh, come up with principles that apply to all of these different types of comics. And so I was looking for those common denominators. And there are certain common denominators in terms of uh, the elements of comics, uh, the words, pictures, and specialized symbols that we associate with the medium. Um, but Oh, and the way that we tell stories in a series of static images. But I found that in trying to put together that, that these seminars, that the, the most constructive way to think of creating comics was as a series of choices. And these include our choice of moment, the moments that we decide to include and decide to leave out of a narrative, choice of frame, how we frame moments, when to zoom into a scene, when to zoom out, what pitch, what roll, what height, what, uh, what tilt, Uh, Choice of image, the different ways that we uh, render those moments that we've chosen for those narratives. Choice of word, how words and pictures combine, whether words will be used at all. And finally, choice of flow, how we guide the eye through panels, between panels, uh, how we send the reader's attention throughout the page. And by looking at this, this brought up a lot of interesting issues for me, not just practical ones but also some theoretical ones, looking at the scene. There are are changes going on in all these fronts in comics today. Choice of moment, for instance, the idea behind choice of moment is that each uh, moment can be represented by an ideal number of panels. Um, uh, For any given series of ideas, it could be that the best way to do this is one one image or three images or two images in order to convey a narrative. Um, And there are a lot of different aspects to this. One is something that I mentioned back in Understanding Comics in 93, which is that there are different types of transitions between the panels, different ways in which you can compress or decompress the action, these six forms of transition. And some of the changes going on right now are a, a lot of decompression on the one hand in American comics, partially inspired by what went on in Europe with people like Chris Ware, uh, taking, that, taking the time to, to show very small moments over very long stretches. This has happened partially because of the um, uh, explosion of graphic novels, that idea of having a lot of room to stretch out and create these narratives on a much longer uh, canvas, uh, it's, it, people are starting to figure out that they have room to move. Uh, this, this image is from Lone Wolf and Cub from a uh, few decades ago, a Japanese comic, a, 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 a sort of samurai comic. Um, I remember looking at this when I was back in college, or, no, actually, excuse me, a little bit after college, and showing it to my friend Kurt Busiek, who also makes comics professionally. Today and, and I was like, look at this, look at this, it's like 20, 30 pages and all it is is like pictures of the snow and the snow is melting and people are lying in the snow and they're bleeding and they're trying to get up. And Kurt was like, 30 pages to get up out of the snow? That's ridiculous. But, <laughs> but, but this is beginning to settle in that yes, we have this opportunity in North American comics to decompress, to show these slower movement. This slower moments. And so that's one of the options that I talk about in the new book and in my courses, that you do have that option if you like. Um, be aware of, of these options. This is, um, this is by Seth, a Canadian cartoonist who just spends a while just showing you the changes of the season. Uh, James Sturm's uh, The Golem's Mighty Swing, about a Jewish baseball team in the early 20th century. Uh, Craig Thompson's Blankets, other examples of just taking time to, to slow down the action. Sometimes taking whole pages, like as in Eric Drucker's Flood here, just to set a scene. Choice of frame. A lot of interesting um, opportunities that uh, present themselves to artists. Um, one of the key things with choice of frame is to show the whole picture, to show, show all the action. So, Oh, you know what? It's a little dim. Do you think we would down the house lights just a little in the front? Just looking here. Is anyone? Is anyone so back there? I see no, it. Somebody's no, moving. <laughs> yeah, we can darken, just darken the front would be great. I will not be taking notes. There, excellent. Thank you. Um, uh, so the first duty is really to show the whole picture. And so when looking at uh, comics in terms of choice of frame, one of the things that we do is we pull back the camera at the beginning of a scene to, to give you a sense of that, that wider view. Although sometimes, as in this example by, by Patrick McDonald, Mutz, we have these moments where, where we restrict that wider view until, until the author wants you to see what's in that wider view. I particularly like that one. You laugh, but you are cruel because that's a sad comic. <laughs> um, Choice of Frame gives us an interesting window on the evolution of comics in the 20th century. The really early comics still owe a lot to vaudeville. And when you think of it in terms of choice of frame, you can see how, oh, look, I can get higher. Um, you can see how these, the, the, the frame really is just like a front row seat at the vaudeville house. And uh, it just sits there, and we have these little characters. Or they're jumping about, and they're, they're knocking over tables, and then they're dressing up in horse costumes everything. You can kind of hear the audience laughing. If you look at this, you can hear in the back of your mind, hear the audience laughing. It's a fixed choice of frame because it's coming out of a theatrical tradition. And in a lot of ways that carries through all the whole 20th century of comic strips. The choice of frame is very conservative. It just stays still and shows you the same thing is its character and backdrop, that sense uh, that the frame is really just a theater stage. And what's really interesting is even in the cinema influenced uh, superhero realm, like post-Kirby superhero comics, you still have vestiges of that. Notice how all the characters are facing out if you look at the, one of the, the key things in, in, the com- in the Western comics tradition, in North American comics tradition, is you still have that sense of acknowledging the audience. They know you're there. <laughs> right? That's a very theatrical uh, uh, thing coming down the pike through a hundred years later. We still have just the echoes of theater. You don't necessarily see this in European and Japanese comics. Um, in European comics, there's more of a sense of world building and there's more of a tendency to pull the frame back. But, but, um, but still, we, we have this sense this, of what, what Will Eisner called being a slave to the close up. You see this a lot in, in North American comics. they having to constantly pull the camera forward and being afraid to pull back and show the whole thing, partially because you're competing with these gaudy ads on the left and right. So, and yet, we still have that more of a depth of field in things like Kirby. Um, and it's fun. It's fun to look at the choice of frame in superhero comics and the very dynamic. A lot of close, far, um, you know, tilt, roll. All of these things compared to sometimes almost self-consciously conservative choice of frame in the alternatives. This is an extreme example by Chester Brown uh, from Louis Riel, a, a graphic novel they did, where, where everything is is uh, very self-consciously ramped. You know, the, the intensity of it is ramped down. Where's my, oh, I don't need a laser pointer. I've got my hands. No, watch. Well, okay, all right. Well, let's see, I'll have it. Hold on. Where did it, where did you put it, though? You're not, don't, don't bogart that laser pointer. Is it Is it there? Yay. We never would have found it. Thank you, Lord. Sky loves the laser pointer. But you see, you could have been like sole laser pointer girl and made me look bad. But now I have the laser pointer. So, <laughs> choice of image, this is what, what's, what interests me is that those first two, choice of moment and choice of frame, that's the stuff that goes on before you ever start to draw. And, uh, you know, I, we would go to, to Borders and Barnes and Noble, my wife and I, and, and, we, uh, um, and we'd see all these books on um, how to draw comics, and all of them were about this, about what we're about to talk about, choice of image, right? How do you render stuff? How do you make it look the way you want? Um, uh, Ivy had actually heard two different... Was it two different parents? Two day, Was it not the same day, was it? It was different days. Yeah, two different parents uh, asking at the counter, my children. My child wants to draw comics, but they don't, there's no books on how to make comics. There are books on how to draw, but not how to make comics. But this is this. Oh, look, Sky was right. Watch. Couldn't reach that far. This. <laughs> that, you know, that that's... You never see that, right? When you pick up an issue of The Incredible Hulk, you never say... Wow, you know that panel where you showed the Hulk actually like reaching, you know, the apogee of his jump and then like coming down. That not showing that panel was great. You know, that's that panel that you left out. That was a good choice not to show that moment. You never see that, right? Because that's those are the decisions made before you ever begin to draw, and yet they're really very, very important. So, choice of image. This is where where all of those. Um, Different techniques come into play, but it's it's very much about communication, communicating with pictures. You know, whether you're working in you know the over overrendered style of, a, of an Alex Ross or in a very simplified, reduced manga style, or or the style of like somebody like a John Porcelino here, uh, it's very much about just communicating what's there. And you, and there are a lot of different options, um, a lot of interesting um, evolution of styles. Now, of course, on on the web as well, uh, a lot of changes, uh, different. Um, Uh, Depth cues are starting to show up as as people are working with images designed for the screen, so there's a lot of changes going on in that realm. Uh, You know, blurred backgrounds, borderless backgrounds, uh, different procedural changes, such as just scanning directly from pencils and, and adding color to that, so, you know, it's saving time. 3D modeling is beginning to come in, borderless colors. Um, What's interesting, too, in terms of choice of image is that a lot of the changes that were coming about because people were beginning to adapt to art on the screen are coming back to print in the form of things like the Flight Anthology, where we're discovering that those types of art that we didn't really think of as viable for print turn out that they really were. Things like uh, colored borders actually look quite nice in print. And techniques like this, just the full range of of traditional media. Then there's choice of word. a lot of that, you know, I think a lot of the real uh, changes going on in the comics landscape now in terms of choice of work are in, um, in the graphic novel movement to just simply deciding what, what kind of content is appropriate to write about and, uh, and you know, pushing the literate possibilities for comics. Um, but as well you have people like Art Spiegelman who um, have great literate ambitions but understand that the pen that, that creates the letters... And the pen that draws the pictures is, can be the same pen and the same hand. And that, that sense of the unification of words and pictures is very important as it goes right back to their heritage and the pictorial origins of, of uh, words. And you have some cartoonists who really recognize that, some of them really quite, um, uh, quite flagrantly, you know, like uh, pointing out the calligraphic quality of words, the, uh, the, the figurative quality of uh, excuse me, calligraphic quality of figures and the figurative quality of, of words. Um, you can see that, that, that wonderful, sort of, you can almost can't tell where the, where the words end and the pictures begin. Uh, and also, I, I, I talk a lot in my seminars about this sort of inverse proportion, that the more, that when you have very word-specific combinations where the words do most of the heavy lifting, tell you what's going on, it gives you a lot of freedom in the words, as in uh, David Cho's uh, work here. Um, And then, well, more stuff. I won't get too much into this. It's interdependent combinations, different types of word-picture combinations. Then what what Will Eisner uh, calls the desperation device, the word balloon. I love that term because it really brings brings out um, the fact that we are really trying to do something virtually impossible to capture a sense of sound in a a silent medium. Uh, Interesting note. Neil Gaiman sent me this. (laughs) This is Word's earliest word balloon, according to Neil. Um, this is the uh, inscription, "The girl is pretty." that would be a caption. that's up top. And um, uh, he let's say, has it, and above their heads, and um, "Hold still" issuing from the man 's mouth. be okay, here. That's right. There it is. That's as that's, near as we can tell that's the earliest word balloon, but although there's really quite a history of them. Um, well, you see the, do you see the desperation of trying to capture sound here in, in, in Dave Sims? Uh, lettering here, actually picking up on individual bits of, of inflection, right, right down to the syllable. Uh, and then, of course, where word, greatest power is really just capturing the rhythm of conversation and the, and, uh, the world of abstract ideas. And choice of flow. I won't say too much about that now because it, it, comes, it comes about later in the talk, but um, just that business of, of the protocol, the under, there is a protocol, there's an agreement, a sort of silent agreement between the reader and the artist about where, you know, what panel you go to next and, what order do you read things in? Do you go left? Do you go right? Do you go up? Do you go down? Uh, all of these things. It's really quite complex under the surface, and yet hopefully, hopefully in the course of actually experiencing it, it's fairly seamless. Something that, that can be a challenge online as well. As well, you can see with the blue stuff, that's actually images from the new book. So, so we have uh, <laughs> over the years... <laughs> Some of you have run into this <laughs> over the years i 've had lots of different uh, interesting debates about web comics and and starting going into that whole realm, I was really fascinated by the the dramatic differences between uh web and print comics um, and I emphasized those differences how how by heading into the web it didn 't have to just be repurposed print; it could be something much more dramatic than that um, but what 's interesting is I discovered that uh, Almost everything I was saying in the seminars as, and in the new book about the way comics work under the hood was applicable to both the web and to print. So even though we had these really dramatic differences between uh, uh, between what I could see web comics doing and what, what was happening in print comics, still at the core, very much the same animal. And um, part of that was just that it all came down to this idea of the call and response, the basic structure of comics, which is that... The artist gives you, the reader, something to see within the panels and then you bring something to imagine between the panels in order to complete the action, that call and response rhythm. And the fact that seen in that way, all of comics becomes this temporal map uh, that as you move through space, you're moving through time. And so that, that link between web and print comics is a little bit like the, you know, the old saw that, that uh, the, the genetic construction of, of chimpanzees and humans is like 96 percent, we share 96 percent of the same DNA. And we know that's true because it says so on the internet, but <laughs> it's, that, it's that 4% you know, that really makes all the difference. Um, and that leads to such dramatic, you know, astounding differences of, of result. So mutations. Uh, when I was, when, uh, early on, before the web even really got started, because these ideas go pretty far back, actually, in fact, in fact, I was talking about some of the same stuff back in, in this room 11 and a half years ago. Um, which in a way is kind of depressing because, well, you know, I say, <laughs> I say about my last book, I say, Reinventing Comics was a book about the future and it still is. <laughs> but... Because <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. Um, but back in the, the original, the heyday of the multimedia CD-ROM era in the early 90s, again, before, before the web really caught on, um, I got a call from a newspaper reporter who is asking me about how about all these computers and comics, you know, will, are comics doomed? And, and I said, no, I think that, that comics are really just kind of looking for a durable mutation, uh, that is, some, uh, some mutation of the form which will still be relevant as, as technology continues to march on and change. And, um, and I remember him saying, on the other end of the line, I remember him saying, yeah, durable, durable mutation, that's, that's what newspapers are looking for too. And there was this, like, edge of desperation in his voice. <laughs> <laughs> this is, like, would have been about 93, 94. Um, but um, that, that idea of a durable mutation became an issue uh, early on as we... But it was seen through the filter of multimedia CD-ROMs. So we had this, this forum which took the visual medium of comics, and the idea was that we could combine it with sound motion and interactivity associated with the multimedia CD-ROMs at the, that time. And uh, so people would take the comics page as is, slap it up on the screen like that, which is exactly what McLuhan said we would do, is that we would take these, you know, the shape of the previous technology and use it as the content of the new technology. And then they would add all this little sound and motion to the pages and stick it into the panels. Um, But the thing was that what what was happening was that we had this basic idea that space equals time, right? Was, Was being proposed and understood in that protocol between the artist and the reader, that as you move through space, you move through time, right? But when you introduced autonomous sound and motion, it's basically time equals time. Right? You have this different proposition. As a result, you had this sort of discontinuity of experience. And you didn't have this single idea governing the media, but you had a changing of the ideas. And when you change mode, you, sh- you, people, you yank people out of the narrative. And so it had, there was a bit of a trouble of these things catching on. Now, interactivity in and of itself wasn't in any way incompatible for me of with, with what comics were all about. Um, And this became a huge issue just a few, uh, like, six months after my first book came out, Understanding Comics, because that's when uh, Mosaic came out. And, you know, within a year or two, people uh, took for granted the the notion of graphical browsers, and uh, the web really, I think, really blew up about, you know, two or three years later. Um, And uh, so the idea of mixing comics and hypertext very early on uh, became an issue. This thing was, this came out in, uh, I think, about 95, 96, out of HotWired, maybe a little bit later, um, where you could, you know, choose these different paths and go, you know, go in all these different directions. The idea of interactive narratives, choose your own, own paths things. It's kind of a powerful idea, but the thing was that um, uh, hypertext, you know, sort of pre- presupposed uh, kind of breaking down of space. Space was, was uh, mastered by, by these, you know, by the linkages. And, um, you know, in hypertext, everything is either here, not here, or connected to here. Whereas, um, uh, you know, it really, it, it, it really operated a lot like the human brain did. You know, the, 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 the connection from, a link, from Abraham Lincoln to a Lincoln Penny to Penny Marshall to the Marshall Plan to Plan 9 to Nine Lives is all more or less the same. But in comics, <laughs> every element of the work had a spatial relationship to every other element at all time, right? And, and also we had this other problem that's something that I think people in gaming have run into as well, and just interactive media in general, which is this, this idea of... of the continuum from author-centered works to user-centered works, um, there's a bit of a tension. We have the sense that multimedia can be perched somewhere in the middle, but really what you're looking at there is not a direct is not a straight line, but a hill. And there's a tendency of our expectations, I think, to want to roll down the hill in one direction or another. You know, and we're I think we feel more comfortable generally speaking if we know whether is are we leaning forward, or are we leaning back, please tell us now. Right? And that's so, And so again, that sets up a kind of discontinuity. It's, I don't think it's insurmountable. I think there are ways to get around it, but this is something that comics is, has grappled with a little over the years. So I was left with this. This is... Um, and, you know, as I, as I made it to the late 90s, let me just see where I've made it to, time-wise. Okay. It's 5.33. Yeah, we're okay. Um, <laughs> just want to make sure I don't go over, because, you know, sky's coming up. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, so, so basically, what, by, by 90-something or another, I was looking for this way to take advantage of all of these various opportunities on, on the web and in digital media generally, while still hanging on to what I felt were the essential characteristics of comics. You know, essentially that DNA. Is there a way to take that genetic code and let it mutate in the new Petri dish? And uh, what, I, what I settled on early on, and again, by the time I was speaking here in Bartos, 11 and a half years ago, this was already very much on my mind, coming out of the CD-ROM era, um, was that that temporal map idea, that idea that as you move through space, you move through time, was a thing worth preserving. And I had, already just, I had already come to the conclusion that that a basic idea was older than print. In fact, older even than the earliest print, that you could see examples of it going back to uh, old Egyptian wall paintings, um, here, where we have the basic idea of sequential art interacting with paint on stone and the idea that when you run out of wall, you just go up and move over. Um, or Trajan's Column, uh, going up in this uh, spiral-up, a bas-relief sculpture like that. Um, or the bio-tapestry. Again, these showing, dis- showing discrete pockets of time. Even though there are no panel borders, you're following that same basic idea. Um, that as you move through space, you're moving through from one era to another. This is showing uh, from the Codex Natal, uh, pre-Columbian, ancient Mexico, you're seeing uh, different places and events in a series of military conquests. Same basic idea. Now, as uh, about 1450 or so, we have things like this. This is the tortures of the, the St. Erasmus, uh, where as soon as the basic idea of sequential art and print, the technology of print come into collision, Right away, we have a lot of the things that we associate with the form now uh, beginning to take hold. So you have these rectilinear panel borders, uh, left-to-right reading sequences, uh, you know, line work, of course, uh, you know, basic uh, simple line work. Um, and I always have to point out, unless anyone doubts that, that, you know, a series of tortures is necessarily sequential, I think we can be relatively confident that that's the last panel. <laughs> um, Um, And really, it's just um, about 150 years later or less that you have pieces like this, um, a true narrative of the horrid, hellish, popish plot, part of a two-pager, by the way, um, in which uh, virtually everything that we associate now with modern comics has really taken hold, including captions and word balloons and whatnot. Um, And it's really just a hop, skip, and a jump from that to here. All right? In terms of basic design strategies, uh, here we go. You know, it's, it's just a very natural transition. That's 500 years or 400 years or so, right there. Okay, so if comics can predate print, they can postdate them as well. But is it possible? I thought uh, <laughs> uh, that the changes from from this pre-print world of, of sequential art um, to the print world might be as dramatic as the changes from the print world to the post-print world. And I thought, yes, it didn't. It had, and it had a lot to do again with those early pre-print examples. And one of the things about them was that they all had this unbroken reading line. That is, they took the idea that as you move through space, you move through time, and they applied the idea with a great deal of virtua- uh, not virtuosity, except with a great deal of fidelity, and uh, sort of an unceasing adherence to the basic idea that every step you took in space was also a step in time. This is true of that old Egyptian wall painting. It's true of the Bi- of trade Trajan's Column. It's true of the Bayou Tapestry, and it's true uh, of the Codex Natal, even as it moves across 88 accordion-folded pages, All right? But something happens as soon as you hit to print, and that is that you come to this point where there's a break, and it's a break of expediency, and it's, and it's one of the ways in which print really conquered the world in terms of information dissemination, but it also does something very interesting to comics, and that is that adjacent moments are no longer adjacent spaces, but now there's that break there, and it happens several times a page, and then you have the ultimate break, which is the end of the page, right here. As I said, this is a two-parter, <laughs> two-pager. Um, and that break has also been um, carried over to modern comics and to all of, these, all of those different forms of modern comics that I was showing you. Okay, so, so again, this is a, now this is mid mid-'90s, late-'90s, Scott, and I was thinking, okay, now we've got the screen. Is there a way we can break past that? Well, of course, the screen is just as limited. Screen is a limited canvas, everybody as much as a page, and it's not as if you can fit the whole bio-tapestry on it. Unless you don't think of the screen as a page, and think of it instead as a window. And that's what I started proposing, again, once again, like 11 and a half years ago. Um, and uh, I started proposing all these different way, shapes that comics could take, and then eventually started doing them on my own website. The idea of moving, uh, you know, side to side and down and staircase fashion. I discovered that, hey, circular narratives could actually be literally circular. You know, a story could take an interesting turn. Hey, look! Right? You know, par- <laughs> parallel narratives could be literally parallel. It's all these weird unholy alliances between the second and the fourth dimension and stuff like that. And, yeah, you could go in the X and the Y, but you could also go in the Z-axis and stuff like that. And, um, you know, my fellow comics artists at the time uh, were, uh, were convinced that, I was pretty much crazy, and this is, this is from Bill Griffiths, Zippy the Pinhead, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they weren't alone. Um, but the, part of the problem was in those days that people were still surfing at like 14.4 and like it took forever to load even the simplest panel, and, uh, <laughs> right? and the idea, anyone old enough to remember that? And, <laughs> And, you know, at the time, trying to, to force them to go a 14-foot-long uh, scrolling uh, abstract adaptation of, you know, old Robert Browning poems was not, which is the type of thing I was trying to push on my website, was not really going over all that well. Uh, I was not adapting to the environment I was on, really, you know, it was, it was as if I had created a flying squirrel capable of jumping from tree to tree on a planet covered with molten lava. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't, didn't work all that well. But, <laughs> But this is funny, because you know, when I use that term durable mutation, before. I had to give a talk in Montreal just earlier uh, this year. Can't believe it's still this year. Um, and I decided, you know, maybe I should look up that term durable mutation to see if I'm using it correctly. So I, I Googled it and I found the first Google hit was me. And, and I realized this is not the term that evolutionary biologists actually use. The term they use is successful mutation. There's an important difference here, and that is When I say durable mutation, when I was was thinking in terms of creating a durable mutation for comics, I was thinking in terms of something that you could use. You would say durable. Durable is a word you use for like a tool, for a hammer, for a plow. Successful implies that the mutation has a mind of its own. right? And this, in fact, is what's really been happening on the web, is you've had these opportunistic mutations of people doing their own stuff and just adapting to the environment as it was. Rather than trying to anticipate what the environment would be in 10 and 20 years, they have been changing based on what's actually happening out there. And here you have the thousands and thousands of mutations that are going on in web comics today. So what have we seen? We've seen a lot of homegrown comics become wonderfully, you know, very popular. or are just taking more conservative uh, formats, but just telling their stories, creating characters that people really adore. We've seen a lot of collectives, uh, groups, people getting together. Uh, online and creating uh, their own um, groups. We have, we have uh, genre evolution of, you know, guys sitting around talking about video games, the guys sitting around talking about music, to people just sitting around talking about people, right? Um, Hey, Jeff, are you here? Oh, maybe he didn't make it. Never mind. Just a thing. (laughs) And um, uh, we've seen evolution of art styles. I mentioned earlier things like, things like, uh, you know, pixelated and, and borderless and 3D and those, those depth cues that I talked about earlier. This is, I'm vamping the fact that I accidentally had the same slides twice, but never mind. all right. <laughs> I already talked about that. Oh, that was a new one. And that, but then we have that, that old thing, that old M- McLuhan-esque conundrum of the pr- shape of the previous technology carrying over into, into, the, uh, into the new one as its content. We still see that to a great degree. So we still have a fair number of, like those, uh, uh, you know, print-shaped pages on the screen. And I think that there are some problems with that in terms of readability and whatnot. But we have others who have adapted to it. People like Justine Shaw, who's Nowhere Girl, is, like, set to, you know, um, fit right on the screen. And, uh, you know, where, where the interface elements have been really marginalized and all you do is just click anywhere to advance. And so the page-by-page pro- approach has, I think, really um, matured in that environment. But but still we have whoops what was that <laughs> still, <laughs> still we have this sort of unfinished business of you know like where could we go with these more extravagant mutations that 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 difference between the durable mutation and the successful mutation I think the reason that I may be on that one side is, is because of who I am you know as the son of a blind genius rocket scientist inventor who like uh, growing up here right in Lexington Massachusetts you know like my dad part of the Route One Twenty Eight axis he was an engineer at Raytheon. Um, You know, I had lots of nerdy hobbies when I was a kid, mineralogy and microbiology and the space program and whatnot. And so I really belong to a particular wing of comics that's always trying to anticipate new forms. So in a way, it was kind of inevitable that I would be heading in that direction. Um, The the scientist, the inventor trying to think in terms of what's going to be useful in 2026 rather than looking at what's here right now. Um, So people like Spiegelman, uh, and, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, Will Eisner, although Will, Will Eisner actually kind of straddles groups. I was part of comics research and development wing, right? But there are other, there are these other parts of comics, too. There are also uh, this more classical aesthetic um, uh, of seeing comics as a craft, seeing comics as, you know, a chance to, uh, you know, build on the shoulders of giants. and and improve on, on the, the excellence and beauty of techniques invented in previous generations. There's a, then there's another way of looking at comics entirely. There's a way of looking at comics as a transparent medium for transmitting content, stories, characters, uh, letting people just just experience the stories and forget about the form entirely. And then there's another way of looking at comics entirely, which is uh, to look at comics as a, way, as a form of very honest, real, raw expression. And, and so I was really just, I was just entering comics through one of four different doorways. What I came to sort of understand gradually, and I write about this a little bit in the new book, as, as sort of four tribes of comics, um, I even gave them names, the, the um, uh, sorry, uh, the uh, classicists in the upper left, the animists in the upper right. I have a pointer, and I'm afraid to use it. Animists? Oh, no, sorry, classicists, animists, uh, formalists, and iconoclasts. And, um, and these, these groupings um, roughly correspond actually to sort of Jung, Jung's four so- subdivisions of human thought, the thinking, uh, sensation, intuition, and feeling. Um, they also represent a kind of uh, uh, art-life dichotomy on the left and the right and a tradition-revolution dichotomy on the top and the bottom and sort of form-content dichotomy on one diagonal and <laughs> beauty-truth <laughs> dichotomy on the other diagonal. Um, and they kind of, they roughly correspond also to various movements in music and, uh, and uh, film making and uh, fine art um, and, and, um, and I thought for a while that they might be, they might correspond roughly to, to stuff that goes on in high school with the popular kids and the jocks and the freaks and the geeks, although I, until I realized that I was talking about comics and we're pretty much all geeks. But, um, uh, oh, oh! And by the way, I, I came up with symbols for these things in an interview that, uh, that it shows up in the book. But this showed up in an online interview a little bit before the book came out. And uh, uh, an artist named Christopher Straub uh, uh, suggested the hypercubic extension of McCloudian draftsmanship <laughs> categorization. So, <laughs> take take a moment to soak this in. I think it's beautiful. Um, but so, th- so, to, so basically, I'm putting this on the screen. So just to just to point, out, obviously, there are dangers with these sorts of reductive. Um, <laughs> categorizations, But oh, the only reason I bring it up now is just to say that, you know, like this, the reason that I'm you know, sort of in this formalist camp um, is that it's really that, in a way, it's, it's the tension between form and content, between those of us who want to sort of figure out what the form is capable of in the long run. And, and those who are really interested in just delivering the content down the quickest road possible, that's a lot of the, the, the conflict that you see now. And so the opportunistic mutations that I was talking about, the sort of those natural evolutionary mutations that are going on now, that's one part of what, of the evolution that's going on in the Web, uh, whereas we have this other formal mutation that's just a few goofy inventors like like me just trying out weird things. So the, the many and the one. Now, one of the reasons I think that, that uh, it could be that it's still important to take that long view and think about what's going down the pike, is that sometimes if, you, if you're just there on the ground innovating innovating in a particular technological environment, when that technological uh, environment changes, you could be in trouble. Uh, because if you don't have a clear idea of, of the, the basic capabilities of your form and the, and the ways in which it can grow, uh, suddenly a format can come along and really, um, you know, suddenly it's dried up and you're, you're, you're out of luck. Um, And so I look at things like the evolution of comics and mobile devices and I wonder, perhaps, if the idea of really small canvases and really big middlemen is not necessarily the way we want to go in the long run. It's important to have an alternative. Um, And so you have a few guys uh, over the years, really since since about 2000, um, we've seen a number of, you know, a small band of weirdos like me who have tried these different bizarre mutations of comics, these new animals in which... uh, the screen is treated like a window and which we have these experiments with these new beasts where comics can be seen all at once. And that temporal map is drawn all at once, not cut up into little pieces on the page, but, um, but created as this new beast um, so that perhaps that durable mutation can still be alive and well as we move into the future. Now, I'd actually like to show you just one or two um, live. This is from local files. and My browser's going to get all weird now for a sec. Whoops! Show bookmarks bar. So i to show one or two of these, and then we'll go on to Sky's presentation and Q and A. How am I doing? It's four forty-nine. Yeah, and we started about ten minutes past, right? Yeah. So I'm yay. I'm late. Hold on. <laughs> this is um, this is a thing called Drew, by Drew Wine called Pup Ponders the Heat Death of the Universe. This is from a few years back. It appeared on a site called Serializer. That would be Pup. My screen is small. These uh, display On a um, regular computer, you'll find this is a slightly bigger window, but we'll make do. When I was a kid I saw a show at the Boston Museum of Sciences Planetarium. This is before the Omni Theater it was just the planetarium. It talked about the sun expanding as a red giant, swallowing up Mars, and then you know, shrinking to a white dwarf. And my mom wanted me to take a bath that night. And I was like, why? What's the, why? What's the use? You know, I said <laughs> It's like, I love Annie Hall. Woody Allen talks about the same thing. It's just like, you, should, you need to do your homework. And he's like, why? The universe is expanding. <laughs> anyway, this makes me think of it. Now, this is, so just an example of somebody just taking that simple idea that, okay, instead of breaking this up into the pages, we're gonna allow the rhythm of the story to dictate the, the subdivisions and rhythm of the piece as a whole. However, of course, we have the, the intermediary of scrolling, which sucks. I think we can all agree that scrolling sucks. Um, but is scrolling necessarily, um, you know, endemic to the idea? Or is it, you know, is this, is this always going to be our interface for these sorts of things? Part of that idea of the durable mutation is how will these things grow in, let's say we have full peripheral displays or we're experiencing this thing as this one huge thing that we can see in our full peripheral vision and we're just going through pieces of it. How will this sort of thing, uh, you know, work if we're able to just reach down and instead of, instead of searching for a button, instead we're able to just reach down and go like that. You know, just fling, stop, like that. So here's another one. This is uh, Patrick Farley's Delpha Thrives from 2001. Gonna show you, but I'm not going to have you read these all, but just give you an idea of some of the goofy things that are being done. <laughs> when he showed this thing in San Diego, there, I think there were some kids in the audience, and he like had this little dialogue box, and he quickly like grabbed the dialogue box and put it over her breasts. And, <laughs> you know, you know, multimedia elements. But you see, you see it's still very, very much uh, just straight comics. The only thing that's, that's different here is... Is the um, the reveal the idea that you're revealing these images? Some of them more than the width of a screen. You're just passing over them gradually. So you have that gradualism of the reveal. It's as you move through space, you're moving through time, and you have this difference in the length of panels affects our perception of the length of the duration. Now, this is really important. Okay, see this? It's up here. Okay. Now, early on, I was a real hard-ass about the whole motion and sound thing. I felt that, I felt that by introducing motion, you were, you were just screwing with the whole idea of the temporal map, right? As you move through space, you move through time. But then you're introducing time equals time, because motion and sound were temporal phenomena that could only exist in time. That's the only way they made any sense. Um, but then some, some people I knew, like Patrick Farley, who started throwing in these little loop sound in motion. I found this was not as jarring, and that's because it still represents a steady state, right? Because if you look at that axis I showed you earlier, right, that space equals time axis running along the X here, um, what's happening here is not that you're breaking with it, it's not going like uh, perpendicular to that axis, but what's actually happening is you're lifting off the axis and you're going in a loop, and you're going boom, boom, boom. And you're hitting you're hitting that axis again and again. It Still represents a steady state, and we still understand that as we hit to this moment. Maybe we're representing a span of time, but it's still a steady state, and it still feels like comics, more psychedelic '90s, late '90s heavy metal style. It's so cool. He knows. He's, he knows that it's all like you know orgasmatrons and whales, and you know it just has that New Agey feel to it. Look at here, too. These little small, again, with a little looped stuff going on here. It's an interesting way of representing an emotion, an alien emotion. I think this actually works really well. It give a sense that you're being exposed to something that that couldn't really be described any other way. Eh, more of this stuff. You get the idea. It's cool. Um, (laughs) This one. Sometimes sometimes you don't need whales and orgasmatrons and and exploding (laughs) planets to get across your point. So here's somebody working in a very simple style that's nevertheless doing something quite radical. This is by an artist named Jason Turner up in Toronto, I believe he is. This, this is is a revolutionary change. If you look at 100 years of comics, okay, you have whatever shape your page is, whether you're talking about comic strips or comic books, whether you're talking about, you know, upright things or like collections or whatever it is, the one thing that's constant is you have panels are changing size and shape all the time, but there's always the same, like, like, little gap between the panels of about a quarter of an inch. We call it the gutter. And whatever style you're working in, the gutter stays more or less the same from beginning to end. Why? Because you don't want to waste paper, right? Because the reader will be pissed off at you if you're wasting paper. They spend good money for that thing. Frank Miller did it with Ronan, and they hated him back in the, in the late 80s. <laughs> um, but they don't hate him now because, all, well, it's a classic, but, oh, at the time. <laughs> so, um, so here we have something where, where, now we have the panels are approximately the same size, but we're going beat, 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 All right? So now we're not we're not manipulating the, the amplitude of the panels, we're manipulating their frequency. Right, so it's frequency modulation. Something you don't see in printed comics at all, but we understand instinctively because we understand the protocol that as we move through space, we're moving through time. That if you increase the distance, you're increasing the time, and so you have that pause. And he's able to work with that, and then play with, play with things on the, uh, on both the x and the y axis. So you get the. I'm just going to show you one more, because I'd like, I'd like to go to Sky's presentation about uh, our family tour. It's coming up right now, and, um, we're, which we've just started. We're only about ten days in. I'm just going to show you one last one by a British artist named Daniel Merlin Goodbury, adapting a giant jam comic it's called POCOM UK 001. Could I have a volunteer to come up here uh, who hasn't seen this? Is anyone who has not seen this comic? And just mouse around for a minute. Come on down may take a while. <laughs> oh, I got three people stood up. Yeah. They didn't know who I was referring to. Actually, it was, it was you there, because uh, you were the one whose hand I saw first, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So, if you could just go ahead and, um, I would like you for you to just click around until you feel that you're confident on how to um, navigate it. So you're going backwards or forwards at this point? Yeah, but not the wrong way. We won't say wrong. That would be a value judgment. (laughs) But you were going, yeah, you were going backwards just there, and you you figured it out soon enough. So that was about 10 seconds, really. So it's really interesting to me. This thing is this is gargantuan, and just keep on clicking. So there's always motion. It's cool. Um, (laughs) um, Even though this is one of the most gargantuan, confusing, bizarre, and distracting comics I've ever seen. Still, Merlin, as we call him, is using, is, is cueing very closely that basic idea that as you move through space, you move through time. And because he's got this single, extremely simple navigational idea behind it, navigating through it is also very, very simple. Now, obviously, this is very distracting stuff. I wouldn't really expect anyone to uh, get into the story and be unaware of the form. The form is hard to, hard to get past in a case like this. But that idea of the fidelity to the essential idea of comics I think is still a key to creating something that durable mutation of comics that can grow even into a world in which we are uh, in, you know, full immersive displays, even into a world in which we have uh, arrived at something that should, by all rights, extinguish comics, (laughs) this is great, Uh, (laughs) uh, I think comics still has a chance to, to last. And what, there's one more thing before I finish up, and that is, I think that motion pictures... <laughs> I just want to watch now. Wait, go ahead. I think things like the moving image are always going to be the way that people relax after a hard day's work. Um, but, but stuff like this... Uh, you, you know, Now I'm distracted. Okay, now you have to stop, because now I'm distracted. <laughs> I'm good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, um, Believe <laughs> we'll it on this cryptic image. Isn't that great? Um, here's the thing. You know, why do comics even exist? I mean really all the, the only reason I'm here today is because a guy my friend of mine, Larry Marder, back in like about ninety-one, when I was working on understanding comics, he said, Well it doesn't matter because virtual reality is gonna come and we'll all be extinct. I was I was like, No, that's not right. You know, and I didn't want to believe it. And then I've just ever since then I've been trying to come up with a reason that's not true. But I think I've got one, I think I've got one. And that is that comics, okay, comics are a slightly artificial medium. They take a lot of participation on the part of the reader to come alive. Um, They may never really be a majority art form in the sense that the majority of people, when they just come home from a hard day of work and they just wanna relax, they will go to things like the moving image. If VR VR ever really kicks in, then they may go to VR, you know, a place to escape. And we wanna escape because no one gave us a choice of what world we were born into. And so it's our birthright to create new worlds for us to step into. And I think that's, that may be a lot of what's happening in the, what's about to happen in the 21st century is creating new worlds. Because, damn it, you know, one is not enough. Um, comics is not, complete, is not maybe not all that much of an escape compared to something like The Moving Image. But we still have a desire to have more than one window into the world we live in. Because that's what media is. That's what all these media are, different ways to re-enter the world we live in through another viewpoint and if you're only entering through one viewpoint, then you're, Then you're, if you're just coming back through that sort of feedback loop of the moving image, um, then it's not as rich a world. But if there's still poetry, and there's still theater, and there's still prose, and there's still comics, then you can re-enter the world through more than one window, and it allows you to triangulate the world you live in, to see its shape, because you're seeing it through this very different viewpoint that's why comics is valuable, but only if comics is not this wannabe, uh, you know, me too, trying to be a little movie, but something that is unlike any other art form. And the aspect of comics that's unlike any other art form is the way in which we rise above that landscape of time. We're able to look down upon it. And forms like this are more comics than any other kind of comics I know. They're that way of accentuating that which is unique about the form. And that's why I, th- I still find these things so exciting uh, as we head into the 21st century. Okay, I'm going to stop now. This guy's going to do her seven minutes on the McLeod family 50-state tour. And don't turn your screen off
2: because I want to go get my
1: photo. Yeah, you can get... Yeah, right. We're not going to show her screen yet because she doesn't want you to see her dirty laundry. Careful that thing doesn't become unplugged. And then we're going to do um, all that other stuff we talked about there's more except I'm sealing my water <laughs> thanks <laughs> thank you The left, oh. the button. It's, it
3: needs to be on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You just got it. Worked last time. There okay. we
2: go. Okay. Ooh, okay. So, um, for the you got this mic
3: here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. So now that you've learned a little bit about um, making comics, the book as well as doing it, it's time to learn about the um, making comics fifty state tour. Yay! Um, here we are. We'll start out with a few introductions. We have Winter here, who is um, a, the youngest out of um, us, um, the two children, and um, and we and she is a sister and a daughter. Um, then er, then we have Ivy, who is. Um, a wife and um, also a mother um, of our family. And we have Scott, who you may recognize also as that guy. And and he is um, a husband and a... um, father as well. Um, then we have me, um, that's my sister and my parents. Um, and at on September 5th, which already happened, um, we are going to be on tour and we're going to be ending, um, sorry, there it is, and then we're going to be ending on um, August 31st. Um, so far this is, oh, Oh, missing slide, weird. Okay, um, we're all going to be um, jumping to our um, Toyota Sienna without that dude driving. And we are going to go to all 50 states. Um, Let me take my glasses off. They're distracting, sorry. Um, And to publicize, is that a word? Yeah, okay, good. Um, Daddy's new book, uh, Making Comics. Um, He'll be doing things like um, the presentation you just saw as well as... um, Looks like my mic. Um, uh, Lectures and signings. Um, And also, Winter and I will be getting an education that we probably wouldn't have gotten at a normal school. Um, (laughs) And before I get any further, I'd like to tell you a little history about the tour. Um, Like most things, it started out with an idea. Um, When my mom was about my sister's age, she would go um, uh, around the country with her father, her brother, her sister, and her mom who does not like her picture being taken and they would um, go to horse shows and dog shows and art shows because her mom was an artist who painted mostly horses and dogs. Um, So she spent most of the time on the open road and she fell in love with it and she wanted to share her experience with her two children. The next question was when to do it, though. Um, In the early 1990s, um, before Winter and I were born, um, one of the first ideas was for Daddy's character Zot to go on the trip, and so he would be seeing all the different places. (laughs) Um, But that one didn't work, and so we decided to do it when Winter and I, who were then born later on, um, were in um, either elementary school or middle school. And the first idea was to do it when... Clicker not working. Ah, no, it is. When... um, uh, w- sorry, when Winter was in kindergarten and I was in second grade. But that had to be changed, and we kept changing it and changing it and changing it until we finally decided on when Winter was in sixth grade and I was in eighth grade, which is now. Um, and that would be when Daddy had just um, uh, finished making comics, and it would, and it, pu- it was published um, very close to the day that we were on the tour. Was it the same day or near the day? I don't remember. Um, yeah, this tour started on the day it came out, so it worked perfectly. So now um, we have the who, we have the what, we have the where, we have the when, and we have the why. But the next question is the how, and that's what I'm here to tell you about today. Um, when I talk to people about the trip, usually they think of like RVs and um, tents and, um, and like backpacking through places, campfires, stuff like that. That is not what the trip is going to be about. <laughs> Um, we're going to stay at nice hotels. Not that nice. <laughs> Not that nice. That's wishful thinking on my part. Um, we're going to be driving a car, um, eating breakfast at continental breakfasts in our hotels, lunch off of coolers when we're traveling, and dinner um, at a restaurant. Um. And for luggage, we have a rolling backpack that each, of us, that each of us have for our clothes and our computer bag, which for the multitude of electronics we have, which you guys would probably understand, and we get to haul it up and down stairs um, every hotel. <laughs> um, and now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the trip on a day-to-day basis. I don't actually know when Saturday, July 16th was. I think it was a few years ago, but whatever. Um, <laughs> now we have... Now we have, um, here's a week. There's only one day where every week where we're pretty much doing something the same on one day of the week, which is Monday, um, which is our laundry day. And that's a day for us to really relax. Yeah, clicker, not working, sorry. Um, for us to relax, um, do homework, sc- or technically schoolwork, um, go to the pool, um, check, uh, check email, and mostly stay at the hotel. Um, And so now I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we're hoping to do every week. Um, We're hoping to go to at least two museums. Daddy is probably going to do one or two um, public appearances. Um, We'll go to about one state. um, Do seven um, blog posts. I bet you can guess why seven. Um, And do an audio podcast and a video podcast. Um, Now, as I talked before about the um, blogging, I'm going to tell you how to... Keep track of us um, online. Um, we're gonna have a live journal community. I most of you probably know what that is, um, where we can post about um, where we can post about the trip and basically all of our views. Um, and it's called McLeod Tour. We're um, posting on it four times a day. So if you want your friends list to be spammed, you should go check that out. <laughs> um, and then here are our four. Um, Uh, usernames. We're basically going to be the base of it. Those aren't our icons, by the way. We have other icons. Um, And we're going to be the ones posting every day, but then when people come um, with us on the trip and they want to tell their side of the story, they can post as well. So we're going to have that kind of dynamic. Then I'm going to tell you a little bit about the audio podcast. Now, the audio podcast is going to be our way of pretty much explaining what we're doing on the trip and what we are seeing. Um, (laughs) <laughs> um, this was originated in Comic-Con, um, so that's why that's in there. Um, and then we have um, the video podcast, which, is, which are going to be interviews. Um, I am going to be the main writer for the questions. We're going to be interviewing comic book artists, Winter. will chip in some of them. Um, and then we'll basically read the works of the person we're interviewing as well as um, research them online, stuff like that. And then Winter gets to interview the person, and we will videotape her on um, this nice um, camera that we have. Um, And then I come in, and I'll use Final Cut Studio Pro, whatever, um, to edit them together. And actually, today I want to make sure that we have good sound. Do we have sound? Um, Sorry. Um, just want to make sure we have good sound and we I have a never-before-seen other than the people in my family um, Preview that I have edited together and also composed the music to um, For the next winter view, they'll be coming out hopefully soon. So yeah. Oh, we're not getting sound. Okay. We're gonna need that um. See this is why I wanted to make sure we had sound
2: <laughs>
3: Yeah, that's not good <laughs> Okay, well, here, why don't I give you the actual clip? Can I turn this off for a sec? Um how do I, I don't, yeah, can you mute image? I have no yep. clue how. Yep, no <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. Um, let me go get it. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me go, just go straight to the iMovie file because I did, had to do the first one iMovie on iMovie because I have a new machine, but um, oh, uh, why is my screen set to something weird?
2: <laughs>
3: I don't know. It's yelling at me. <laughs> I plugged it in and now it's on some weird okay, let me go to system preferences. I'm sorry. We need like uh music or something. Yeah, no, last time when I w- did a con, it crashed like before. It was like in the mid it well, not in the middle, it was four fifths of the way, but it was bad. Um ooh. Do you know how do you know how to change the size of the um of the screen somehow? I was re- noticing this. Look how weird it is. Sure.
1: It's uh, oh no, iMovie will probably scope. scope no, it doesn't. It's
3: not allowing me to open it unless I have it. Oh. Mm. You know
2: what?
3: Mm. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> Winter, it's I just need to um, change this around. I just need to find one thing that
1: How do you? Know. I can make the display smaller?
3: That's no, I want it I want it to be regular.
1: They they won't uh, the screen can only go to 800 by 600.
3: Really? What about? Yeah, you
1: can try 20. Uh,
3: That's can, what it was said. Before.
1: You can try, but I don't know if it's going to uh, want this play necessarily. Too long. try. <coughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
3: Wait, am I re- reverting or confirming?
2: Confirm.
4: see what happens. <laughs> what the heck?
2: Sorry, experiment.
3: this is this is my new machine I got the day before yesterday. It's a MacBook, but I still have to work out, you know, the kinks and stuff. So you got this far. Okay, let's see.
1: Okay, tell me now I'll
3: go. go. so need, that
0: needs to be posted soon. <laughs> so, so we're now going to have very brief responses from three graduate students who I can't promise are going to be nearly as cute. as, uh, But I think uh, will have their own impressions to make of the presentation. The first of whom is uh, Jeffrey Long. He's a second-year graduate student in CMS. Uh, he's writing a thesis on transmedia storytelling, and his own stories can be found in his magazine, InkBlox, as well as Polaris, Gothic, Haika and Fray. So I'm going
4: to... Hello, everybody. Um, So what I'm working on right now, as Henry just mentioned, is transmedia storytelling. So I'm looking at uh, all these new properties that you're seeing out there where they start out in one media and then turn into another one. Um, Current examples of this include uh, Joss Whedon's now continuing Buffy the Vampire Slayer in comics. It's coming up now. Uh, enter the Matrix, which was the video game was positioned between the second and third Matrix films. Um, the X-Files movie from a couple of years ago that would jump from TV to film and then back again. And all over the place. Um, what we saw originally is they start out with one established media, um, makes a whole bunch of money and then somebody in some other industry comes up and says, hey, that really worked really, really well in my other industry. Here, have some more money and do it over here. And creator of choice goes, thank you, I like money and I'll do it over there. Um, But what's coming up now is that we're seeing more and more people using things like the web and print to um, start out with that in mind from the get-go, right? So that we have um, more projects like The Matrix, where when the second and third um, movies were green-lighted, they said at that point, yes, 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 we want to do the game. We know this already. Let's start filming this now. So some of the questions that I wanted to field for our illustrious guest over here are um, what aspects of comics do you think translate really well into a media like film? And what kind of things really get lost?
1: Am I live? There. Okay, yeah. Uh, You know, it's interesting, first you kind of have to separate um, the history and traditions of comics. Things like serial fiction, for instance, are inextricably linked to the culture of comics in the 20th century from strips and books though it's not, it's not necessarily essential to, to the form. And in a way, you know, your question could be looked at two ways. There's the comics culture, comics traditions, and then there's also just comics in general, the idea of you know, sequential art. And I, I, I take it as an article of faith that you know, in terms of the potential of the form itself, that there's nothing, there's nothing that can't make the transition. I don't believe that that's true. It's more like, I mean, I know that there are some things that it skews towards and some things it skews away from, but i, I 'm almost superstitious about never saying that comics cannot go here and comics can go there, because even if I, even if I have a gut feeling that it may be true i don 't want to ever circumscribe where it can go. Um, however, in terms of the traditions, I think um, certainly serial fiction there's such a rich tradition of serial fiction uh, that it, uh, that there 's a very easy transition into things like uh, you know the serial fiction of television and that idea that, that, that the the ever um, kind of the ever expanding character universes that we find in certain franchises, things like The Matrix and whatnot. Um, that seems a very natural progression. But you know, we've seen, I mean like just recently in terms of, you know, adaptations of comics into other media, we've seen very easy transitions for comics of wildly different orientations. We know everything from American Splendor to Spider Man to history of violence to, to V for vendetta. There's very different sorts of, of stories and approaches and, you know, formats and yet they'll make the transition because, I think because the filmmakers in those cases are, are willing to take comics on their own terms mm-hmm. and to not, and, and not to be overly reverential as in the case of something like a daredevil, ooh, you know, or, or to be overly contemptuous as in the case of like all comic book movies made before 1979 <laughs> or so. <laughs> um, so I hope that, that sort of addresses that.
4: And what do you think about um, Ang Lee's The Hulk? Nice try. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He meant well. So for a transmedia property, um, what do you think are the pluses and minuses of starting in comics?
1: Well, comics have tremendous control. I mean, they're really good for control freaks. And if you really want to create a universe and have a great deal of fidelity and control over the, the nature of that universe and the visualization of that universe, there's really nothing quite like it. Um, you know, to be the next Joss Whedon, which I'm sure Skye would like to, you know, <laughs> that's sort of her ambition. Um, uh, you, you need to, to some extent, you need to work your way up through the through the ranks, through the, the, the mills, and it's it's awfully, you know, ugly there. I mean, you know, a great collaborative machine uh, with a lot of money, you know, money interests interest and things at stake. It's, it's hard sometimes. But um, it's nice, though, to re- rise to that sort of platform of expression, which often happens, uh, in comics, as you know, like a Frank Miller, for instance, and then just to be able to hop over, sometimes hop on right to the top of the podium, totem pole. You have the case of Frank Miller, you know, with Sin City, you know, he, he hops over Robert Rodriguez's name on the credits of, you know, like Rodriguez actually wanted Richard Robert. Robert, yeah, okay, I'm right. Um, uh, Rodriguez actually wanted Frank Miller's name first on the credits for Sin City because all he did really was clip clip out the comic and say, do that. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. I mean, that, that, was, his, that was his storyboard. Um, but there were reasons having to do with the Directors Guild, I guess, that, that, that Rodriguez's name first came first. But that, you know, it's funny. You know, uh, uh, the case of Miyazaki, um, uh, when he did his very first feature film, uh, Nasuka, he always wanted it to be a film. He was told in Japan that, no, you have to make the comic first. Because that's the way it's done in Japan. Which I always found fascinating. as a cartoonist and, and viewed with a great deal of envy, actually. <laughs> that it, that's how it worked. Okay.
4: Um. I guess my third. Uh, one more. Um, I, I have nowhere here, guys. to go. Come on, and this.
1: I mean, I feel feel guilty. We went long, so I don't. I don't care if you do, unless they need the room. Do they need the room? I'm not sure. we'll, see. we'll We'll find um. out. <laughs> <laughs>
4: You do mention um, there in your talk and in your book about uh, comics moving more towards the mobile medium and the small screens and limitations that we're discovering on that front. And I was wondering if you'd talk some more about that, either positively or negatively, if you want to rant or whatever.
1: I refer to it I, you know, in the book briefly, but um, uh, as far as mobile devices go, it's still in the embryonic phase. I mean, really, they're just tiniest little baby steps. Um, comics has not really arrived in the mobile sphere yet but there are a lot of people in my industry who feel as if it's, in, as if it's inevitable. And uh, it's great for showing, you know, panel one, two, three, and four of today's Kathy. <laughs> but I worry, I worry a little bit that the really small screens, the really small screens require, really, I think, prompt us to embrace certain spatial metaphors that may limit comics growth. Um, I like the open network. I've really, I've, I've been very spoiled now by the last 10 years of a completely open network that when, when the reigning structure of HTML uh, is insufficient, we just create a new little plug-in, you know, to go in. But if you have a platform, let's say the, the example of the iPod comes up a lot. This is a platform created by a company. With, I mean, this is the company that tells all musicians that their songs call nine, cost 99 cents that that all TV shows cost $2, they're going to be this shape, they're going to be this format, and you'll like it. And that's a good company. <laughs> and that's a company I like. <laughs> so I do worry a little bit about the potential format restrictions uh, that could accrue. I mean, really, the only iPod comics that are out there now, it just uses the movie format. It's like a movie, and you click it and make it go. That could be a
4: problematic, I think. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: So, second up as a respondent is Laura Nichols, who's a second-year master's student in the Future of Learning Group at the Media Lab, and her research focuses on using an intersection of art and engineering to aid in the hands-on learning of mechanical and structural design. And In her spare time, she draws comics and has just finished her first mini-comic. So, Laura.
5: Uh, It's kind of intimidating to stand in Bartos, I think, but, um, so, um, I, I guess, like Henry said, I, um, I do kind of art and engineering, uh, specifically I build kinetic sculptures out of wire, and, um, I guess I also draw comics, like you said, and, um, so something I think about very much in my work is um, why it's important to have like, an actual practice of doing things because there's a lot you learn um, tactilely, like this very physical knowledge about creating things. Um, and so, I don't know, like, this whole feeling is very important to me, like touching things, um, the experience um which is why like I tend to shy away from web comics because i don 't like sitting at a computer <laughs> I secretly don 't like computers um, <laughs> and um so like the actual like holding a comic is really nice to me um and I was just wondering like what were your thoughts on um Different ways to navigate. Like um, I've, I've seen, like this um, multi-input touch display. You, like where oh, you can like yeah. grab things and move it around. And I was like, wow, it'd be really great to make comics on that, where I can like move them and like touch them. Or um, I, I also have started making like different inputs to create art uh, on the computer that are um, purposefully hard to use, <laughs> <laughs> um, because I, I feel like. Um, creation is kind of a conversation between, like, you and your materials, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Like Like, the pen kind of bounces on the page and, like, you can control the pen to some degree, but the pen is also telling you where it can go. Same with, I think, even more so with brushes and ink. But, um, so I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts on, like, what do you think would be a fun interface for, like, comics digitally?
1: Well, you mentioned the multi-touch. In terms of, um, in terms of the readership, that mentioned the multi-touch input display, which I'm sure you all saw this like circulating. Weren't that somebody was rumoring that it was here. I, I thought
5: know. it was at New York. Where was it yeah, in it New it was York NYU? NYU?
1: Maybe it was NYU. But it was just this thing where like zooming in is like going like this. Yeah. Right? Zooming out is like going like this. You reach and scroll. I want my perfect display as a reader is reach down, do that, and it has momentum. Friction and momentum, right? So you just you're like, here's your canvas, you go like this. You stop, right? So it's like roll, stop. That to me is like the perfect display, and I don't see any reason not to want it. Say I want it, and maybe get it. You know why not? We got other things we wanted. Um, but that idea of like like bumping up against the limitations of of um, of your tools, I understand that. On the other hand, I I like find like we're always pushing them. I I don't know. I think it's fascinating to like create like deliberate impediments. I think is really interesting. Although. Although I, I will continue, like many of my brethren, to seek that with the, the least impediments. It's just like my Cintiq tablet that I drew this last book on where I'm drawing directly on the screen. Essentially, I had eliminated all impediments, and now I feel like, yes, this, this will do what I want. It is my slave, <laughs> right, you know? Um, so there's that. But um, I think that, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's in, we struggle against limitations. I. I believe in struggling against limitations, and I think that limitations have led to some of the most interesting works in art, but I also think that often we struggle against limitations for a time, then the technological landscape changes, and then we're still bent and distorted and in the posture of the previous limitations, and it takes us a while to straighten out our limbs and realize we no longer have to be, we no longer have to be contained. You know, and so, and that's, that's what really happens, and we're in that period now where we have to acknowledge the limitations that have vanished, and not mourn their passing, and not feel like, if only I was restricted, I could be more creative, you know, but instead to understand like where the, uh, where the new restrictions live, because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's only by filling out to the shape of the complete potential of the new environment that you can discover those new restrictions. Right. right? And if you're, still, if you're still hunched in a little, you know, um, uh, fetal position, you know, with the, with the big new crib, you know, then, then you, you haven't found the edges of the crib. You have to find the edges. So I hope that answers.
5: Oh, no, I think that's really great. I actually my very my much <laughs> like the idea of exploring the edges of things. Um, I guess, okay, another question I had. Um, since I, I make things that move, like I think this idea of gesture is really interesting. Um, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think of like this crossover between like animation and comics? Um, like, I was thinking Miyazaki and Winsor McCay. Um, specifically, I was watching a, a, I guess, Spirited Away the other, like a while back, and like certain ways he framed it looked very much like, this is a shot from a comic book. Yeah. Like, it felt very much like that. And um, I don't know. Like, you I, you touched on motion. You like, where do you think? This this intersection lies like motion versus still like so I, I make things that you look at them and then when you interact with them they move. Mm. And um, I don't know, comics.
1: Well, <laughs> 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 well you know, <laughs> Windsor McKay's an interesting case because you know, this for those of you who don't know, this is an artist who was working right at the beginning of the last century. He was right there at the birth of both animation and Comics, at least the modern newspaper comic, and uh, the man had a lot to do with the evolution of both in those very, very crucial early years. What was fascinating is the way he presented his films was he would do these hand-drawn animated sequences with this character, Gertie the dinosaur, and it would be projected on stage in vaudeville houses. Again, remember the vaudeville was very intimately connected to those early comics, and he would interact with this moving black-and-white drawn dinosaur that would come up and eat from his hands and things like that. And he understood the theater of both, of both the comics and of movies. But the, the strongest connection really is, in, is that it, going back to the idea of the sort of the DNA, that little genetic code in each medium, because really all, the only real difference between the moving image and comics is that in one case you have the same image shown at different times in the same place, or you have successive images shown at different times at the same place versus uh, different places at the same time. And that's all. It's that simple. Everything else is just culture and circumstance and the human beings and companies and characters and and, and empires that built up around these two different forms. But at their very coldest, simplest, most reduced, that's all it is. And so it's fascinating to watch how those two genetic branches create these these different creatures. Now, I mentioned the fact that Miyazaki, um, ironically, really wanted to just be a filmmaker. So it breaks my heart, we can't claim him for our own, but clearly animation had its heart from the beginning. Uh, but in Japan, it's very interesting that, that all these, these creations came from comics and into film. And that may be one of the reasons why Japanese anime is so powerful, one of many, I'm sure. But that idea that you had this pure, clear voice, an individual voice in the creation of these, these characters and stories, then making its way into film, rather than something that began as a collaboration Rather than something that began with 300 cooks, all all hunched over the pot, you had one mind creating a story from beginning to end, uh, with assistance, but still one mind, and then that makes it jump into into anime. And that may be one of the crucial uh, relationships there.
5: Oh, that's awesome. Okay, I have I have one more question, <laughs> then, and then I'm done. Um, so you were talking about like when you had the the four scores up, and like the form versus content, and like the different ways of thinking about these things. Yeah. And in relation to the internet, like, pushing the boundaries again. Um, and I, I was actually curious about the change in relation to the fans, um, about how, like, you can reach more niche groups. I like I know the book on Long Tail just came out, like, talking about, like... Um, because it's, you know, easy to disseminate, like, more, like, smaller niche groups, like the guys who are interested in gaming, people who want to hear about people talking, all these things. And um, how do you think that's changing? And also, like... The idea of micropayments. I was wondering how those were working. <laughs> <I don't know.
1: laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one to introduce right at the very end when we're tight on time. Well, <laughs> 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 micropayments hasn't happened yet. That'll be my comment on that. Despite my, despite my best efforts. But to the previous uh, question, fan interaction, um, I remember the days when I, we would try to create more, uh, you know, more uh, interaction between fans fans and artists and whatnot. I, I created an appa back in the 80s where we would, people would send in Xerox contributions to a magazine that would, you know, everybody would talk to each other and professionals would talk to each other and we would, there would be a central mailer who would gather them all together and send them out every, you know, three times a year and yeah, everybody would send in their $20 to help pay for the, the copying and you'd spend several days uh, stapling and I am so glad. <laughs> that we have the internet now because because now there 's there's, there's so much more instantaneous communication, and the artistic community i 'll tell you all of the artists I know we 're communicating with each other every single day we know what what everybody else had for breakfast and, and the, the communication between our fan i mean certainly on the blog um, now that's it. that 's now an integral part of of i can 't even tell you where where that communication begins and the actual comics begin you know it's it all it's all blending together and it's so integrated now that uh, it's, it's just this one big mass of communication. Because media is a form of communication. I mean, you know, it's, even though it's point to many in the case of a comic and it's many to many in the case of the sort of communication that goes on in blogs, it's still all part of the same overall texture of communication. And, and those bridges have gotten so short now that it's all just one big neural network and that's we're just getting started, obviously. And, in 2006 this thing is very new and very primitive compared to the sort of communication we could probably expect in the next few decades. Awesome, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And our third respondent is Alec Austin, a second-year CMS grad student who co-founded and edited savantmag.com, a website of comics criticism, and worked as assistant manager and bookkeeper of Comic Relief, a major West Coast comic bookstore for several years, and he's drawing on understanding comics uh, as part of his work on his master's thesis.